This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Luke 19 is where we're going to be this morning. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Jesus, you are a gracious Savior who did not count equality with God that is remaining in heaven a thing to be grasped. But you humbled yourself and took the form of a servant so that you might seek and save those who are lost. In our lost condition, may we see, savor, and glorify the Savior who has sought us. May that be our celebration, and may that be our proclamation this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this is the final week of the Unbroken Song series, our Better Late Than Never Advent series. Each week we've looked at one of the reasons that the Bible says Jesus was born. The first week was Jesus coming to bring peace. The second was Jesus coming to give up his life. Week number three was Jesus coming to destroy sin and death. In this final week, we read that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And now if I had to to make a guess, when I say that Jesus came to seek and save the lost, just based on premise alone, this week is the most controversial. Everybody's for week number one, peace. And everyone likes hearing about how Jesus defeats death because death is an enemy for us all. But when you start not just implying, but saying that some people are lost, you're going to lose, no pun intended, some people and make some other people angry. We live in an era of self-sufficiency. And so the suggestion that someone needs saving can be immediately offensive. That's nothing compared to the reactions you get when you try to tell somebody that they are lost. But here's the thing about Christianity and and, and about our God, Jesus Christ. What most people have either been led to believe or just never had anyone lovingly point out to them is is, is that the people Jesus is interested in saving, the people that Jesus says, I came for these kind of people, and the way that Jesus goes about saving is really different than people outside of a good news-filled, grace-saturated type of relationship with Jesus often think that his saving work takes place. And here's here's what I mean by that. Most people who truly don't truly know Jesus think that he's stiff and judgmental, but he's not. He is the most gracious, kind, gentle, loving person who has ever lived. 
That's a true statement. Jesus is the kindest person, the most loving person who has ever lived. And so if your view of him is that he is hard and judgmental, let me try to change that this morning. But also just let me humbly suggest you don't really understand or know who Jesus is. And this isn't new either. This isn't, this isn't a new take on Jesus for our time. Since he was born, people have assumed they know what he was like. Hard religious people think he's hard and religious. And people who know they're broken, unfortunately, and way too often think that he could never love somebody like them. But when you do what we're going to do here, you actually sit down and read the stories of Jesus in the Bible. And you see the way that he approached people and how he talked to people and what he actually said and how he really was. What you see is that Jesus was fed up with overbearing, think they're better than everybody else types, and he loves to spend time with real people, with broken people, with down and out people. And he loves to spend time with people who are utterly shocked that he would look at them and see them. And that's what we find this morning. Jesus looks at a man who is beyond surprised to even be seen at all. And then Jesus goes to spend time with him and everything about the man changes. His whole life is different after this. So we're going to be in Luke 19. We're going to read 10 verses. And we're going to primarily talk about one of them. Or off one of them anyway. So Luke 19, starting at verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Why did Jesus come? It was to seek and to save the lost. So here's what's happening. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. The cross is near. It's time to die. 
He's passing through towns on his way, and people are coming out to see him because there's this growing hope that he's going to go overthrow the Roman government. That's what they thought was going to happen in Jerusalem. Jesus knows he's going to die. People think he's going to lead some sort of a military-type insurrection. But he's not going to do that. He's going to go defeat death by entering into death. So despite saying over and over and over again, even to his closest friends, they refuse to acknowledge what's really happening. And so here he is in Jericho. That's about 15 miles west of Jerusalem. And this man, Zacchaeus, hears that he's coming. And here's what we're told about Zacchaeus. He's rich. And he probably got rich by being a chief tax collector. What you often hear about tax collectors is people didn't like them because they collected, and this is the reason that's given, people didn't like them because they collected a little extra and then sort of skimmed it off the top and kept some for themselves. They probably did that the same way that, you know, a mob boss does in a movie. Zacchaeus probably had some muscle for people who didn't cooperate. You know what I'm saying? He had a couple of guys, and they were big guys, and they were tough guys. And it sounds bad, and it sounds kind of sleazy, but it's actually, Zacchaeus is so much worse than that. Zacchaeus was a tax collector in Jericho, but Jericho, 15 miles west of Jerusalem, in all of first century Israel, were ruled by the Romans. And the Roman Empire was one of the most aspirational, brutal, conquesting nations that the world has ever seen. At this point in history, Rome controls most of southern Europe, most of northern Africa, much of the Middle East, and what we would consider a a good chunk of Western Asia today. And the only way you keep an empire that big, that vast together is through consolidating power and wielding the weapons of fear and intimidation backed up by aggressive uses of force. So in other words, Rome has a massive army and they use it to go in and to subdue and to occupy territory and they do it nation after nation, territory after territory. And the way they paid for it was by taxing the people that they conquered. The reason crucifixion, the way that Jesus died, exists is because the Romans invented it. They wanted to devise a cruel, yet public and visible way of dealing with enemies. Just in case anybody defied them, they wanted to be able to make an example of them. And so there are historical accounts of the Romans crucifying tens of thousands of people at a time so that anybody left would see that and understand the cost of defying and standing against the Roman Empire. So historically, in the mid-60s B.C., Rome overtakes Greece as the major power in this part of the world, and they invade Israel. And in order to pay for the occupying army to subdue Israel, they tax the people of Israel. And in order to get rich himself, 
Zacchaeus helps them do that. But Zacchaeus doesn't come from Rome to be a, tax, a taxation administrator. Zacchaeus is a Jewish man. He's Jewish, it's a Jewish name. He's an Israelite. These were his people, and he not only joined with Rome to tax, to pay for the very army that oppressed them, but he is called the chief tax collector, which means probably the way he became the chief tax collector is he kind of bids or offered a certain rate of return to the Roman government in exchange for being commissioned, empowered, allowed to tax his own people. So when reading this, this man who's a chief tax collector, he's not just crooked. He's not just mean, probably brutal. He's a traitor. He's a traitor to his own people. And we're not told what brought him out that day. Maybe it was curiosity or intrigue, certainly a buzz. Maybe he heard somebody was coming to overthrow the Roman government, and he was worried about what was going to happen to him. Remember, he had taken the side of the Romans. But for whatever reason he comes out, it becomes obvious in the providence of God that he had been brought there because it was time for him to meet Jesus. We're also told he's short, so he can't see over the crowd, so he climbs up a tree, and when Jesus gets there, he stops, Jesus does, looks up into the tree, sees Zacchaeus, already knows his name, probably through some divine omniscience, and says, come down, we're going to your house. But Jesus doesn't just say, I, I, I want to come over. He says, I must stay at your house. I sat there, and I, and I thought, well, why, like, why must? Why must Jesus go to Zacchaeus' house? And not just eat there, but why does he have to stay there? And we're not told much, but here's at least two reasons, I think. First, Zacchaeus is going to have his whole life turned around. Jesus is going to turn on everything for Zacchaeus. And, and second, Zacchaeus is going to stand forever as a really prominent example of exactly the kind of people that Jesus came for. Jesus needed to go to Zacchaeus' house so that Zacchaeus could be changed. But even broader than that, Z Jesus needed to go to Zacchaeus' house so that we could read this today and know that anybody can be saved. If Zacchaeus, a traitor, a swindler, a pusher, could be seen and saved by Jesus, then you can too. Then I can too. And then Zacchaeus wisely jumps at the chance. He's excited. He gets people together. They have a dinner. Everyone's having a great time. Well, not everybody. There are some people there that are grumbling. That's never, that's never positive. It's never positive to be called a grumbler. Somebody says, well, he's kind of a grumbler. She's kind of a grumbler. That's not a good thing. And there are people who just grumble. All of a sudden, just follow around Jesus grumbling at what he's doing. They're saying, well, he's eating with sinners. Here's what some people... People who think they want to, who think they know God, people who even think they're favored by God. 
to do the things that they think he wants. But some people just never, some people never get this. Folks, Jesus came to bring people joy and abundant life. John 10.10, a thief comes to steal and destroy. I, Jesus says, comes so that we, we all, might have abundant life and joy. So life in Jesus is about joy. I've never been able to figure out why so many people who claim to have personal relationships with just, with just Jesus who came to give abundant life are, are so angry and bitter all the time. They seem to be irritated by everything. I'm still friends with my junior high youth pastor. He had great ministry going at, at the church that I grew up in. Teenagers were inviting their friends. Young people were getting saved. People were growing in their passion for Jesus. The group was having an impact on local schools. And then he just kind of up and left. I never really asked him why. Finally, a few years ago, I, I said, why did you leave? Everything was going so well for you. He said, honestly, bud, I got worn out by a few leaders in the church who just constantly sucked the fun and the joy out of doing ministry. We had a thriving ministry, and it was just always, they were just always angry about it. So he would just, he would tell me, said, we would have these great nights where, you know, kids would come to the group, and, and they were responding to the gospel. They'd bring their friends, and new kids would hear about Jesus. And, and he said, I'd, it was a great night, and I'd come into the office the next morning. I was excited to follow up with these kids and their families and, and see how God is working in their life and see how Jesus could change their life. And then I'd always have a, a phone message or a meeting with one of the guys who was on staff at the church, and he'd just talk about how, you know, youth group was kind of loud the night before, or some middle school kids left a mess. And he said, like, I just, I just, eventually it was just, it just became too much. I couldn't do it. These grumblers didn't see that Zacchaeus was someone whom God could, would have mercy on. And here's the irony of God's mercy in the minds of hard hypocrites. This is the supreme irony when it comes to the hypocrisy of many people when it comes to Jesus. They don't think most people deserve the grace of God. And they don't think that they need it. Let's get that. Most people, according, if you're just like a hard religious hypocrite, most people in, in that camp, in that world, with that mindset, they don't think most people deserve the grace of God. They think they kind of have it, but they don't really need it because they're all set. They think they're fine the way they are, and they think other people have no chance with God. But folks, nothing could be further from that truth. No one is fine on their own, and everybody can partake of the grace of God. When Jesus says that he came to seek and save the lost, he means he came to seek and save anybody who would be found. But he knows some people are going to be better situated to hear that and see that than others. 
Again, I don't know what brought Zacchaeus out that day, but I suspect that Zacchaeus had a burning in his heart that made him feel like he needed God's mercy. Because as soon as Jesus wants to come over, he can't get out of that tree fast enough. And then look at, look at his response. First, stands up. He's going to give half of what he owns to the poor. He's rich. And let's recognize something here. Zacchaeus is never going to say, Jesus save me. Those words don't come out of his mouth, at least recorded for us in Luke. But based on every indication here, we know that Zacchaeus has said that in his heart. So let me just give you three reasons, obvious reasons, I think, why we can assume that Zacchaeus, in heart, has humbled himself and knows he needs Jesus to be saved. So the first reason is right here. Number one, he gives, his, he gives half of his stuff away. In the previous chapter, Luke 18, a rich man comes to Jesus and he's looking for the way to eternal life. But he's both proud and he's selfish. And Jesus knows this. He can see it in this man, his pride and selfishness. So he works with him in a way that's going to help this man to see the true position of his heart. This man comes and he's expecting praise from Jesus in his pride, but Jesus is going to point out his sin to him. So Jesus says, well, you you achieve eternal life. You have eternal life by keeping the commandments. And the young man says, I have. I've kept the commandments. Every single one. That's not true. It's not true. He hasn't kept them all. Nobody, nobody can. But that's not the point. Then Jesus says, he said, okay, you've, you've, you, th- you think you've kept all the commandments. Why don't you sell what you have to the poor and follow after me? And the young man, young rich man, hangs his head. He goes away. He can't do it. He loves what he can buy more than he loves Jesus. That's in Luke 18. Now here in Luke 19 with Zacchaeus, it's the opposite. Jesus doesn't need to to say anything. He doesn't even need to give those instructions. Zacchaeus just stands up and says, my life's been transformed. I'm giving half my stuff away. And to everybody he's defrauded, this is what comes next. Remember, until a couple of hours earlier, Zacchaeus was a known extortionist. But now he says, to anybody that I've defrauded, I'm going to pay back four times what I've taken. That goes back to an Old Testament means of making a debt right. And it's the maximum. So Zacchaeus is saying, from now on, I'm different. Everything about me is different. How I view the world, my job, what I'm going to do with myself, that's all different. And Jesus' response. Now, first of all, can you just imagine how much joy this gives Jesus? He's got grumblers on the outside. And he's got a man just saying, hey, I want to give everything away to follow you. So Jesus says, today, to you and your household, it's a common expression, you've been saved. That doesn't mean that giving his stuff to the poor and repaying his debts with extra, was what saved Zacchaeus. What Jesus is doing is acknowledging, celebrating 
what has taken place in Zacchaeus' heart already. So think of this like cancer, only in reverse. When the doctor comes in and declares the patient is in remission, the cancer has retreated, the patient's in remission, the doctor isn't making it so when he comes in and says the cancer's in remission. What he's saying is after the treatment, taking into account all the medical tests and the scans, from everything she can see, the cancer has already been in remission for a while. But that's the day it's declared and celebrated. Zacchaeus saved in his heart. And everything that we know about him on the outside reflected what had already taken place in his heart. So then in verse 10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In the upside-down view of life with God, admitting that you are lost is the way to be found. That's how you're found. You admit you're lost. Several times Jesus says that anyone who has trouble admitting that they're lost who's holding on to their life tightly, will one day have life slip through their fingers and fall away. But if you can look at Jesus and admit that his way is better, that you're lost without him, he will show you what life really is and you will have it abundantly in him forever. People fear giving their life away. They fear not having control. They think they might lose out on things. They might not have what they need. That's just our self-centeredness talking. It's just our desire to be little gods coming through. If you give your life to God, he will make sure you have exactly what you need and exactly what is good and right and best for you. Sure, there, there's a huge element of trust in letting go there. Absolutely. But you have to ask yourself, would you rather be like the rich young ruler who's afraid to put his hope in anything but what he can hold in his hands? Or would you rather be like Zacchaeus and say, I've tried worldly power and wealth and it doesn't work? I want Jesus. I want life with him forever. And the danger when your faith with God isn't being too broken. You can't be too broken before God. You can't even be too clueless before him. You can't be too unwell before him. The danger is the opposite. It's thinking you're all set on your own. In Matthew 9, Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. Go and learn what this means. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. When he says, Go and learn what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, he means that God is not most pleased with people who can perform. 
God's not most pleased with people who put on a little show and know all the religious observances. For us, maybe that's, you know, saying the right things, knowing what to do, maybe taking part in all the right things. God loves people who are merciful toward others for the precise reason that every single one of us is actually sick and we all need a doctor. If we have any semblance of having it together at all, it's only because God has been kind and gracious to us. So my grandpa was a doctor. He began practicing long before we had all types of specialties that we have today. And so he would do, in fact, he'd, we, would go, we would go to him a lot. He would do quite a few procedures that a lot of times you'd go to a specialist. Now, he'd just do them right there in the office during your appointment. And so can you imagine what he would think if someone came to him complaining of something, complaining of an ailment, he helped them, and on the way out, someone else was waiting right there in the waiting room with the same problem, but the patient my grandpa just helped look at, looked at this other person and said, what's the matter with you? I had this problem, but I'm all better now. Why are you still struggling with this? If we're any better at all, it's, already beca it's only because we had an appointment earlier in the day. Everybody's sick. Everybody needs a doctor, and Jesus is the one every single person needs. And God loves lost people. He, admit, he loves people who can admit that they're lost. Earlier in Luke, there's this trilogy of parables that Jesus tells about how God loves and likes to find lost people. It was the first one about a man who has a hundred sheep, but he loses one, and he leaves the 99 to go look for the one. Then there's a woman who's got 10 coins, but she loses one, and she just turns the house inside out looking for the one she lost. The third is the prodigal son. He treats his father terribly, like he's good for nothing but an inheritance. And once he squandered that, he plans to come back and beg his dad just to live in the barn with the pigs. But instead, his dad celebrates his return. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And I love both of those, seek and save. He came to do the seeking. He didn't come to, to be available, you know, to kind of set up a spot where you can admit you're lost and, and, and come to him, then he'll save you at his saving booth. But you have to come forward to the booth. He was the one who came to earth to do the seeking. And he saves. He saves from the futility of sin. He saves from the deception of self-sufficiency. And he saves from the punishment of God on anyone, anybody who refuses, or, or, or sorry, who admits that they need help. So I started out by saying it could be offensive to suggest that someone is lost. That's not what I'm saying, that some people are lost. I'm saying everybody is lost. And our only hope of being found is for Jesus to find us. And the great thing about that 
is Jesus finds everybody who wants to be found. There's not a single person who's ever lived or who will ever live who wants to be found by Jesus that he will not find. He finds everybody who wants to be found. We play a lot of hide-and-seek at our house. I have a 10-year-old, and she's getting pretty good. She finds some good spots. And then I have a 3-year-old. The great thing about playing hide-and-go-seek with three-year-olds is because they actually want to be found. You know, I try to do the thing that, that, that parents do, where you, like, you, you pretend that you don't know where she is, and so, because she's usually just like under the table and you can see her, and so you, you just kind of, you know, or she's like sitting under a blanket, like straight up on the couch, just like under a blanket. You know, and so I walk around and I'll say, I wonder where Ellie is, and then just inevitably she'll be like, I'm right here! <laughs> And then I make this big deal of finding her. Here's the thing. She wants to be found. And even though I kind of made it seem like I was looking for her, like I had to find her, I really knew where she was the whole time. That's how it is with Jesus. He finds everybody who wants to be found. But he's not really looking. As if he doesn't know where you're at. He knows exactly where you are all the time. And when you call out to him, he celebrates. Not that he found us. He's never been confused by where we are. But he celebrates that we're asking, calling out for him to find us. If we're in him, ultimately we're never really lost which he knows. He's always known that. But we haven't always known that. So there's a big deal made about him finding us. Not because he ever lost us, but because we've come to a place where we can say, Lord, I want to lose my life so that I will find it in you. So if you've ever felt lost, good. Call out to God and be found. If you've ever felt like Zacchaeus, you've just done too much. Zacchaeus probably felt like an awful, rotten person. Know that Jesus sees you. He knows exactly where you are. And he wants to come and he wants to save you. And he can and he will. If you've ever wondered if it's possible for God to save somebody like you, it is. God has saved much, much worse. He can do all these things. Ask him to find you. He knows right where you are. And don't give up on other people. Just haven't asked him yet. And don't get proud toward other people. Because you just had your appointment earlier in the day. He came because of people like me and like you and like others. Seek and save us who are lost. So let's pray. God, may we be found in you who did that finding 
truly before the world was formed. But who we are just realizing the great gift of grace that is Jesus Christ have been given. May we lose our life, follow you. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.